Good morning. I am excited to see the other half of you this morning. It was a good time of fellowship in the first service, and it's always a blessing to be able to be with Cross Lanes Baptist. Whether you know it or not, everything I have or uh, can, can produce as far as ministry is concerned, as far as personal faith is concerned, as, as far really as life is concerned. Most of what I've learned has come from Cross Lanes Baptist, and your encouragement has been a blessing always and continues to be an encouragement. So thank you for that. I'm excited to be here, excited to um, fill in, I guess, for Pastor Seth and, and, and be, able to, be able to help you all hear some good preaching. I, we're, we're, we're picking up we're picking up in Luke chapter 3 in the, the, the sermon series y'all have been in, in in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in verses 7 through 14. Uh, the first part of Luke has been the formation of the boy Jesus. He is coming into his... his um, maturity as a as the one who is going to be the messiah he is he is is increasing in stature he's increasing in respect with the people around him and parallel to that account we have the account of john the baptist john the baptist is the one who's going to make the way straight for the messiah to come in and and be the one who is going to proclaim the message of the gospel to the peoples of earth john the baptist is the herald Last week, we discussed the beginning of his ministry, his call from the desert um, to the people, uh, and the beginning of his baptism. He is now telling people, proclaiming that the, the Messiah is imminent, the Messiah is coming, and I am baptizing with water, but there is one greater who is coming. And that is where we pick up in Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, if you would follow along and read with me. Word of God says this in verse 7. He, being John the Baptist, then said to the crowds who came to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What then should we do? The crowds were asking him. He replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He told them, don't collect any more than what you've been authorized Some soldiers also questioned him, what should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Let's pray. God, this morning you have blessed us by giving us a time to reflect and to read and ultimately repent before you at the beginning of a new year. We thank you for this time of fellowship that we have together. I pray that it would not be a wasted time. It would not be a distracted time. It would not be a time of waiting before whatever comes next. It would not be whatever comes after our small group time. God, I pray that this would be a time of learning with you, a time of intimacy with you, and a time of renewal and personal revival so that we, as we go into this next year and the years after, can be fully sold out and bought in servants for your kingdom. God, I pray that you would remove any, any, 
inhibition from me. I pray that you would remove any barriers from me. I pray that you would give me only your words and that the only thing heard this morning would be a message from your Holy Spirit. God, we are blessed to be your people and we thank you for what you are doing in the life of this church and in the lives of our families. And it is with this posture of gratitude that we conclude in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, the sermon is going to be entitled, Produce Fruit, Good, Produce Fruit Consistent with Repentance. And on this topic, we're going to discuss what I believe is a progression that is laid out by John the Baptist of what repentance looks like, a progression of principles wherein we can understand what it means to be redeemed and reconciled to a holy God, but also productive and serving in the kingdom of God among the peoples of earth. And the first principle in that uh, progression is this. Repentance leading to salvation is produced by godly sorrow. Brood of vipers. Who is John the Baptist addressing? Well, in, the, in, the, in Luke's account, uh, we find that first he's addressing the people that are coming to him, the crowds that are coming to him. And he's uh, seeing that there's not a complete in, uh, sincerity among those peoples in, as far as their, their aspiration to his baptism is concerned. There's not complete sincerity in the reasons for which they are coming to seek salvation. These common people have been oppressed by Rome for however long that they have been oppressed. They have been seeking this Savior. They have been hearing silence from God as far as the prophets are concerned. And they are awaiting an answer, but for some purpose are approaching this baptism and this Messiah with insincerity. There's other groups that are coming to approach this as well. In the parallel account of, of this story and this in, encounter with John the Baptist that we find uh, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7, the Pharisees and Sadducees are also present. The people who comprised the Sanhedrin that was leading uh, the, the people of Israel. The Pharisees would have been those who accepted completely the inspired word of God and accepted the oral traditions of the people. And understood that there was a spiritual life around them. And they also led and were very legalistic as far as the law was concerned. Pairing the oral tradition with the, with the, the message that God had given through the Old Testament. The Sadducees only accepted the Pentateuch. They were more rigid in their understanding of Scripture as the sole inspired word of God. But they believed less in the spiritual life. They disagreed on points of the afterlife, angelic beings, and things of, those, the things of that matter. So you see that each of the groups that are coming are different, right? There's different groups. There's different people that, that disagree on multiple different issues, and they're coming, but they're all being addressed as a brood of vipers, the reason being they were all coming with insincere heart, hearts. They were alike in that matter. They were all approaching this baptism with an agitated curiosity compelled by a proud and false sense of security and their identity. Their intent was not pure. John's reaction to his audience builds out why their intent was incorrect and why their intent was insincere. You see, they were trying to claim salvation based on grounds that were not of God. They were trying to claim salvation based on grounds that did not come from Scripture. What were those grounds? First, we see fear of external judgment is an ineffective claim on salvation. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? 
They were scared of judgment and wanted to make sure that this baptism might provide an extra layer of insurance against whatever was coming. See, evil hearts hedging against the power of a righteous judge have not experienced salvation. An earthly fear of a coming judgment in and of itself is not sufficient to save someone because it doesn't recognize the source of the salvation. If the consequence is the only thing that is feared rather than the one who brings the consequence, if the judgment is feared rather than the judge who is handing down the sentence, then there has not been repentance that has been experienced. There is only fear. Fear of external judgment is an ineffective claim on salvation. Position is an ineffective claim on salvation. Multiple times, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees throughout his ministry in the, in the Gospels decried their absolute hypocrisy in regards to what they preached and what the law said. Outward decorum betrays inward realities. When our position is the thing that we take stock in, it is impossible for us to match up to God because our position can never be completely a reflection of perfect obedience. You see, God requires righteousness. He requires holiness. He requires perfection. It doesn't matter. It does not matter what our station is. It doesn't matter what our job is. It doesn't matter what kind of family we have. It doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter what kind of earthly power or leverage that we hold, it is never enough to compensate for the inward reality of our brokenness and our sin. Position is an ineffective claim on salvation. Fear of judgment and position are ineffective, but ancestry is also an ineffective claim on salvation. John addressed them saying such, and don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children from Abraham, for Abraham from these stones. The covenant of the law, whether in the old and former sense or in the new and fulfilled sense through Jesus, has always been dependent on the heart condition of the people. Each man answers on his own account, not the account of his father, of his son, of his grandfather, or even a man as great as Abraham back in his lineage. Ezekiel 18, verse 18, says this about the personal responsibility of the individual for sin. As for his father, he will die for his own iniquity because he practiced fraud, robbed his brother, and did among his people what was not good. But you may ask, why doesn't the son suffer punishment for the father's iniquity? Since the son has done what is just and right, carefully observing all my statutes, he will certainly live. The person who sins is the one who will die. The righteousness of the righteous person will be on him, and the wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. It doesn't matter who your father was. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what claim you have to ancestry. Everyone is responsible personally for their sin. Everyone is responsible personally for their salvation as far as faith is concerned. And there is no claim by association to salvation from the scriptures. Neither fear of judgment, position, or ancestry can save us from the coming wrath. Only the core underpinning of John's baptism and later the baptism of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, can save men. 
Well, repentance for forgiveness of sins is not a normal decision, is it? It's not like going to Walmart and picking up groceries. It's not like going and getting gas at the sheets. This is something that is vastly more important than any other decision we could possibly make. It's a brokenness responsive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the reality of our sin. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. If you would look at 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, the writer says this, For godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. Godly sorrow, if it is necessary for repentance, must be defined in order for us to apply, apply it to our lives. And I think 2 Corinthians 7 supplements what John is saying and gives us a blueprint for how we are to reflect and enact godly sorrow. First, godly sorrow has to come from the source of life. 2 Corinthians 7 differentiates godly grief or godly sorrow from worldly grief and worldly sorrow. I have often been upset about my own sin. That's not hard to do. Each of us in ourselves has a map or a code of morality that tells us what is right and wrong. This is nothing foreign to any culture in the history of humanity. All of us, to some degree, understand a generally similar system of right and wrong. And that's because God has impressed on our hearts what is good and what is not. There is in the world a reflection of what is good and what is not. Now, if we willfully ignore it or not is up to us, but our recognition of it is there. And it is not uncommon for people to feel bad for the things they have done. It is not uncommon for prisoners to be remorseful about the crimes that they have committed. It is not uh, uncommon for, for families that have been broken, for the people involved to be remorseful about how those situations split. Being upset about sin is not uncommon, but it is also not sufficient to redeem us from our sin. Being upset about what has happened and, and the bad things we have done is usually, mostly, as we've discussed, a response to uh, the, the result of our sin or a response to the, th the judgment or the, the penalty that has come as a result of what we have done wrong. It is not a response to God. But godly sorrow comes from the source of life. And it, if it comes from the source of life, who is God? It must mean that when we recognize the gravity of our sin, we're not recognizing the penalty, we're not recognizing the consequence, but rather we're recognizing our disobedience. We become not the center of our sin, but rather God becomes the center of our lives, and we recognize that who we have sinned against is not only our own bodies, but the God of the universe. That is godly sorrow, a brokenness in response to the ignoring of God's holiness, the ignoring of God's commands, that is godly sorrow. And when we make God the center of our activity, our response to our wrongdoing changes and repentance can come as a result. Godly sorrow comes from the source of, source of life. Godly sorrow comes from the source of life as a reckoning agent. If worldly sorrow only can make us feel guilty, then that means it is merely a weight, Right? is something that hangs around our necks, is something that pulls us down, but it is only guilt in response to ourselves and the things that have affected us negatively. When we have godly sorrow, 
It allows us to respond, and it pushes us to respond. There's no way if we have godly sorrow that we cannot in some way try to get closer to the one who we have so offended. There's no other response other than to break ourselves down before God, reckon with our sin, grapple with our sin, and respond to him in repentance. Godly sorrow is different from worldly sorrow and worldly grief because it makes us act. And that is where repentance comes from. It is not a dormant feeling, but rather an active agent for us to respond and reckon with our sin. Godly sorrow comes from the source of life as a reckoning agent to bring saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know guilt is not from God and you know conviction is not from God when it doesn't give you hope. God gives us hope. There is not solely destruction to come from sin if we respond in faith. And godly sorrow gives us a way back to God. Fully an act of His grace. Fully an activity, an ongoing act of His grace. And something that allows us to reconcile ourselves with Jesus Christ. Godly sorrow comes from the source of life as a reckoning agent to bring saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that um, forces us to repent of our sins and turn away from those things which we have done. When we approach the cross of Jesus Christ and supposed to have salvation due to a response of fear, our position, or our ancestry, we boldly presume upon God's graces and misinterpret the redemptive message of the gospel. Godly sorrow comes from the source of life as a reckoning agent to bring saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Only repentance for the forgiveness of sins, a reversal of ways and a clearing of our record can save us, and only godly sorrow can encourage such a redemptive transformation. If we have not known our sin, God the Father has not known us, and the blood of Jesus has not stained our hearts. Condemnation is the lot of those who have not experienced godly sorrow, those who have not wept over their iniquity, those who do not experience anguish because of their guilt before a holy God. The righteousness of mankind is as dirty rags, and the offering of ourselves is in no way sufficient to compensate for our wrongdoing. God demands perfection. Jesus is that perfection. And if we decry our guilt, repent, turn from our sins, we can in an instant be transformed and purified eternally before God. Exhibiting godly sorrow brings us to a point where we can repent and be led to salvation. Repentance leading to salvation is produced by godly sorrow. Repentance leading to salvation is also evidenced by godly living. If we're going to work through this progression and we have defined and applied godly sorrow, then we must define and apply repentance. And last week you were given a definition of repentance, but I would like to supplement that and provide for you a second definition of repentance that might help us understand to some degree greater what John the Baptist is communicating to the people in his audience. Repentance can be defined as such, a moment of turning and a lifestyle of discipline. A moment of turning and a lifestyle of discipline. We'll deal with turning first. Turning means to flee from sin and abandon the old way. Flee from sin and abandon the old way. I have to fly relatively often compared to the normal college student. 
And typically from Tuscaloosa, I go through Birmingham, Atlanta, Charleston, if I'm going to fly. And you would think, after all the different times I've flown, that I would finally figure out each of the airports that I spend the most time in. And you would think even greater that the place most important out of all of those, the parking garage, would be the one that I would figure out first. But as you all know, parking garages were invented by Satan for the hurried traveler. And I, I am hurt every single time by these parking garages. The last time I came through Birmingham was through for, uh, for Thanksgiving. I was flying in. I'd parked my car. I was ready to go. And I could not find the parking garage. And I, wa- I wasn't hurried. I wasn't late, you know, but I was hurried enough that I had to do the duck walk to get to the gate. So I knew that I wasn't, didn't have all of the time in the world, but I had enough time to at least figure out where I was. It took me some time. I finally figured out where the, the, the terminal was, terminals were and found out where I had to fly out. I got my stuff out, parked the car, did everything I needed to do, came home, hunted, did all the Thanksgiving things, ate far too much food. As I was coming back, It was the day of the Iron Bowl, and I don't know what you know about Alabama football, but that is the same as Christmas for Alabama football fans. It's the day that we play Auburn. And that Saturday, as I was flying back, I had the CBS app out, and I was trying to listen to the game. I had my backpack on. I was trying to carry my roller bag. I couldn't find my car. I'd gone through all this trouble to figure it out. I was missing the entire third quarter of the most important game of the year that could have determined whether or not we were going to the playoff and I couldn't find my car. I spent 30 minutes trying to figure out where my car was. Nightmare. And I was so mad because when I got in the car, you know, everybody had scored at least two times apiece, and I'd missed everything important that was going to determine the outcome of the game, and I had messed up. I did the same thing both times expecting to find my car or to find what I needed to find. Now, it's a silly example But it conveys an important point, and the point is this. When we flee from sin, or try to flee from sin, when we try to say that we're repenting and moving in a different direction, and we continue the same life habits that we had before, there's no way we're going to find the car. There's no way that we're going to be able to right ourselves and find Jesus, find purity, find holiness on the back end of whatever we're doing. You cannot live the same lifestyle you lived before. You must flee from sin, abandon the things that held you back beforehand, abandon the things that that so marred your spirit and separated you from God in the first place. You have to abandon those things, give up the old habits, and go the other direction. Repentance is a moment of turning, finding salvation and committing yourself to Jesus Christ. Repentance is also a lifestyle. And by lifestyle, I mean consistent obedience conforming us to the person of Jesus. Consistent obedience conforming us to the person of Jesus. If repentance was only an instant, then we could sin and grace would abound, which Paul dealt with in the New Testament. There were people who thought that this sinning more would allow grace to be exhibited even greater and we could enjoy life but still have the eternal riches that God was going to give us. And John is telling him, wait, you can't do that because a truly repentant heart is not going to live a lifestyle in consistent sin, but rather is going to discipline themselves to be consistently obedient, moving themselves toward the plan of God and toward the, the, the rhythms of life that are going to support holiness and support obedience. John gives exhortations in the back end of this scripture for godly living and tells us what disciplines we must undertake if we are to be faithfully repentant in our lives. 
First, in verse 11, he replies to the crowds that are asking him what they should do by saying this, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. If we do not live generously and we do not give of what we have so that others can come to know Jesus, we do not grasp fully the weight of the gospel. If we do not give of what we have, we do not grasp fully the weight of the gospel. When God sent Jesus, he wasn't sending us a care package, okay? This was not something he purchased at the store. This was not some cheap solution, temporary solution for what our problems were. He was sending an eternal and perfect solution to be ripped apart by the people that hated him most, hung on a tree, and put in a grave for our sake. That's generous. He gave a lot for us. The gospel was not cheap. And if we're going to live consistently repentant lives and are unwilling to be generous in our everyday activities, unwilling to be generous with the resources we have, unwilling to be generous with the time that we have, how can we say that we understand and have been transformed by the gospel? A generous God calls us to be generous people. And if we are going to live consistently repentant lives and respond to what God has done for us, we have to be generous with what we have. Verse 11 tells us to live generously. Verse verse 12 says something different. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Tax collectors then, as in some other similar eras, Uh, were not honest and uh, took more than they should have taken and were going about their vocation in an unhonest and an unjust way. God is 100% just. That's the reason everyone who has sinned is condemned to hell because there has to be a blood penalty. There has to be a death penalty according to Romans 6 for death, for, for sin. There has to be a consequence applied somewhere. And if God is just and we want to be like God, conformed to his image, consistently obedient, then we must also be just and honest. Our dealings must be clean and we must treat others well in order to reflect the God we serve. We need to live generously. We need to live honestly. And verse 14 says the last way we need to live, the last of John's exhortations. Some soldiers also questioned him. What should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. I want a lot of things and I enjoy nice things and I enjoy what the world has to offer because God's creation is pretty creative and there's a lot of good things available for us to enjoy. But get this, nothing can make you content apart from Jesus. There's not a single thing that completes us the way that Jesus Christ does. And the more that we grasp at the, the, the futile and the fleeting things of this world, the more that we, we clutch at those riches that we have, we clutch at the temporary securities we have, the more that we seek fulfillment from all of the temporary pleasures of this life, the more we forget that God himself has sent the ultimate satisfaction for us. 
God has given us the vehicle by which we may be content, and that is Jesus. We are fully fulfilled. We are completely whole because God has sent a Savior. We can live contently. We don't have to chase after the things that are of this world and sinful. We don't have to submit ourselves to impure activities. We can avoid sin and live a consistent lifestyle of repentance because we are content. What else do we need? We have eternal life. We have a comforter. We have community through the body of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have a purpose through our, through our ministry and our mission to others. There is no sector or facet of life in which we can say God has not provided. And because he has provided, we can avoid sin because we can find our fulfillment and contentment in Jesus Christ. When we grasp the scope of what God has given to us in Jesus, we will give freely to others. When we grasp the justice God displayed by imposing his judgment on Jesus, we will relentlessly seek honest and just lives. When we grasp the completion God granted our spirits when he gave us heaven's riches in exchange for meager faith, we will be aggressively content in our standing in the world. Fruit proves the root of salvation because transformed lives can only come from transformed hearts. God did not wrench us from death in order to have us live in squalor. Sin must be behind us and the fruits of the Spirit must be before us. Repentance leading to salvation is evidenced by the fruit we bear in godly lives. Repentance leading to salvation is produced by godly sorrow, is evidenced by godly living, and delivers us from God's judgment. In verse chapter 9, John the Baptist says, The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Judgment is guaranteed. Verse 9, the axe is already at the root of the trees. It's not possibly there. It's not there in the future. It's not there if we don't do something. There are no contingencies to this. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Judgment is guaranteed. Judgment is imminent. The axe is already at the root of the trees. It hadn't swung yet, but it's getting there. Judgment is sure, it's imminent, and it's eternal. Verse 9, the trees that don't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I like apocalyptic movies. Typically, they're unbiblical and they have terrible acting, but I really enjoy them. And one of my favorites is the movie 2012. There's a solar flare uh, that, that, that messes up the earth's, uh, it's, I don't know, it's probably fake science, but there's a solar flare that messes up the, the geology of the, uh, something about the earth's crust and water starts busting through everywhere. The whole earth is going to get flooded the same way it was in Noah's time. And there's a man who is trying to save his broken family and escape from these ridiculously overdone scenarios and save his family from the impending apocalypse. And there's planes taking off from these massive earthquakes and they're dipping down into the field and there's fire everywhere. It's nonsense. But the, the message of the whole movie is the end is coming and judgment is here. And there's a real parallel to this in life because guess what? Judgment is coming and the end is near. 
This is not a practice run. This is not dry fire. This is real life. And there is a real end coming. And there is real judgment that is upon those who did not produce fruit and are separated from the root of God. Humanity's position is dire, more so dire than any movie or story that humanity could contrive or write. We are in a fight, and this fight is for the lives of people, the souls of men, those who have not yet been saved. The end is imminent, and destruction without some drastic event is sure. But, but judgment is not God's desire for us. The axe is at the root of the trees because the, uh, the, the Jewish people have, have rejected uh, the, the plan of God. And um, God, is, God is grafting in a new people. That, that axe is making way for all the peoples of earth to be saved. Verse 10, what then should we do? There is an alternative. He didn't leave them there with that. The end was not judgment. The end was not the end, but rather there was Jesus And because of Jesus, we can be reconciled to God. All the peoples of earth can be reconciled. God has a plan for both the Jew and the Gentile, for both man and woman, slave and free. Everyone has the opportunity to be reconciled to God. Jesus came so we did not have to experience the judgment we should have experienced because of our sin and that he could take the penalty on himself. 1 John 2, 2 says this, He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. For those without a relationship with Jesus today, eternal judgment is guaranteed and unavoidable because of the reality of sin. The axe is ready to strike the root of the trees. And I would plead with you this morning to flee the coming wrath, press into God, and repent of your sins. Repentance allows us to be delivered from the judgment that God has promised and brought into his family so that we can be saved from what is coming. Church, our mission is to be sure that the message of hope accompanies the message of judgment. We know because we've experienced it that God has a better plan for the people, for his people, and for people on earth. Right after John was proclaiming this judgment, right after he told them what was coming, he then told them how to be saved. He gave them the hope right there. Verses 11 through 14 give them hope for what a lifestyle of repentance looks like. In verse 18, in verse 18, it says, along with many exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. Our job is not to sit by while others are are condemned to hell. Our job is not to to wait it out because we've already got the vaccine. Our job is not to avoid the mission because we all are good. Our job is to take it to those who don't have it. Our job is to proclaim the message to those who have not heard yet. The Messiah is born, killed, raised, and glorified. And we await his arrival and desire that all are saved before that imminent morning. I ask you, will you be faithful to proclaim the message of salvation to the masses who have not yet met the Messiah? Wrath is sure, but salvation waits by an open door. Repentance leading to salvation is produced by godly sorrow, is evidenced by godly living, and delivers from God's judgment. This is the hope of Christmas. This 
is the message of Jesus. This is the identity of the church and the very thing in which the entire universe revolves around. Without godly sorrow, there is no repentance. Without repentance, there is no salvation. And without salvation, we are all sifted into the fire like chaff, separated from the wheat, doomed to a wrathful judgment of a holy God. The good news is that this progression of repentance pulls us from sin into God's family for eternally purposeful service in God's kingdom. For the saved and the unsaved, repentance is called for at this moment. I don't know your sin. I don't know your pain. I don't know your struggles. I don't know your failures, but I can relate because I myself am imperfect and no sin. Sin's a heavy weight to bear, and true repentance is a bitter drink to swallow, but life is sweeter when our lives reflect God and His goodness. I was assigned what to preach. This morning, by God's providence, the last sermon of 2019 at Cross Lanes Baptist Church is not about resolutions. It's not about goals. It's not about uh, whatever the new plans are for 2020. The message is repentance. The message is for us to turn away from those things which are pulling us from God, commit ourselves to His service, be saved if you've not been saved, and be faithful if you've not been faithful. Now is the time for decisions to be made, and I pray that you would not leave this year questioning your stance before God. You would not leave this year questioning where you, where you are in your walk with Him. Nail it down today. Today is the day for repentance. Today is the day for deciding. Today is the day for choices. There is hope for you, and there is something better. There is something better. Let's pray. God, we deserved everything that you've promised us as far as judgment goes. We deserve the death. We deserve the separation from you. We deserve our lot. And yet you extended a hand. And that hand is Jesus Christ. God, you provided a way for us to be saved. If we believe in your son, if we confess our sins and commit ourselves to a repentant lifestyle, disciplined in the, in the word, disciplined in your spirit, and disciplined in our calling, we can be saved. We can be redeemed. We can be transformed before your throne and we can have eternal life. God, I pray that we would lean into that. I pray that this call would not be one that would fall on deaf ears. This would not be another sermon. God, this would be a change. This would be a turning point for us, a time for this church to, to find a new fire, to find a, a new track, to, to blaze a new trail in faithfulness for you. God, we want to see you, and we want to be changed. God, give us godly sorrow that we may repent. Give us strength so that we may produce fruit and give us urgency to share with those who will experience judgment. In your name we pray, amen.